Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. If you are here, that means that you're not, at least right now, watching the Academy Awards. So thank you especially for making the effort to come. I think that you will be rewarded in the sense that the story that we're talking about today is one of the more sensationalist or entertaining stories that there are in the Bible. So on some level, um, hopefully you'll, you'll get that entertainment value you're, uh, you're foregoing in being here. Plus, I mean, even after you leave here, there will still be like seven hours of the Academy Awards left. So you're good either way. So today we're talking about Jonah. And we're going to think about how this story is a story that we live out all the time and ways that this story is actually repeated throughout the Bible. Uh, first of all, for context, I know that uh, many of you may be familiar with the story of Jonah. Um, you know, some of you may be very familiar. Maybe you've heard it um, from the time you were a, a little kid and you've heard it your whole life. And that's why, too, I think a, a, a fitting summary for a lot of people for what the story of Jonah is, is an anthropomorphic asparagus goes on an adventure with some pirates. That is Babylon B's one-line summary of, of the book of Jonah. So a lot of you are probably familiar with it from that angle. Uh, the book of Jonah itself is actually, in the, in the Bible, is part of a group of books called the Minor Prophets, or also called the Twelve, because there's uh, 12 prophetic books in that section. They're called minor, not because the prophets themselves have only minor roles. It has to do with like the length of the book, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those are very long books uh, that are uh, prophetic books. And these are among the shorter ones. Uh, Jonah is easily the most well-known of those minor prophets' books. In fact, some of the books of the, the minor prophets are so relatively unknown that you may not have even remembered which ones are in there in a while. These are books like Obadiah or Zephaniah or Zedekiah or Zechariah. These are the ones that they're hard to remember. You kind of know that they're in the Bible. In fact, they're actually so hard to remember that you might not have even noticed that I snuck one in there that's actually not in the Bible. It's Zephaniah. And I know that it's actually so confusing that some of you maybe didn't even realize that it's not Zephaniah, it's Zedekiah. That's the one that's not actually in the Bible. And, uh, and that's, that's where we're at with this collection. Jonah ends up being the most prominent of those books, uh, of that collection of books. So there are two major reasons that the book of Jonah is really well known. And I want to talk about both of those before we actually get into what the story is about, because the reasons that the story of Jonah tends to be really well known sometimes actually get in the way of us understanding what the story is actually about. So we have to talk about the, the number one reason why that story is so popular. It's that fish though, right? Look at that thing. It's huge. What is that? So one of the, the big issues that comes up with the book of Jonah is that in what seems like a pivotal point in the story, there is a, a big fish, as it's called, that, that swallows Jonah. So big fish is actually how the word is written out in the Bible. It's not a whale. There's no known species that we know of that's big enough to swallow an adult man. And because of that, uh, because of the fact that this, this animal seems to take on uh, mythical characteristics, that so much of people's mental energy about this story is devoted to debating whether this big fish was real or not. 
Uh, some of you may have been a part of these discussions in the past. Maybe it was a hang-up for you in either letting the story speak to you or uh, taking the Bible seriously. Uh, in fact, there was a time in our history, so in the uh, early 1900s, there was the, the, what's famously called the Scopes Monkey Trial, where the state of Tennessee had a, a legal case about whether it was uh, okay or allowed for uh, the theory of evolution to be taught in biology classrooms. It actually ended up being that one of the significant subplots in that court case was this discussion about whether the story of Jonah literally happened and that there was a big fish or not. Because to a lot of literalists, um, these two things are connected, right? Whether the theory of evolution is true, whether the story of Jonah is literally true, whether, you know, because the idea is that if you can't take all of these kinds of supernatural events literally, then you can't take any of them literally. And at that point, what is the Bible really doing? Uh, what is, what's special about Jesus or anything like that? And I'm very sad that it ended up that this is a, the way that the story gets told. It's this, this kind of literalism where, where uh, it's an all-or-nothing approach, where if you, you know, that fish has to be real. It has to literally have happened that way because if it wasn't, then my whole understanding of the Bible falls apart. Uh, not only do literalists tend to get hung up on this, on the opposite side of the spectrum are what you can call naturalists. These are people who, they would say that that story, the, the way it's told in the Bible, could definitely not have happened because we know that stories like this are impossible, right? It's impossible for there to be a fish big enough to swallow Jonah. And this kind of fundamentalism is also really disappointing to me because it posits a worldview where what you see with your eyes is all that there is. And where's the fun in that? Uh, and this is coming from somebody who's a scientist. I spend my whole life trying to understand the way people interact with each other, the way the world works based on what we can observe. And even I am captivated so many times into thinking that there's so much going on in this world that goes far beyond what I can sense with my senses. And I don't hold to this wooden view of the world where the story of Jonah is implausible because we know things like that never happen. I think both sides, whether you're a literalist who think it has to be literally the way Jonah is telling it, or a naturalist who think there's no possible way it could happen the way that Jonah is telling it, both of them in some ways are selling God short. God can do many things that go beyond my own sense of under, senses of understanding. And God, through his people, can tell stories in many different ways through many different genres. And Jonah is one of those stories where really, when it boils down to it, it's not about the big fish. I don't care whether Jonah was literally swallowed by a fish or not. This story is actually powerful and bizarre and ridiculous and challenging all without that fish. And that is the approach that we're going to take. We're going to move past whether the fish was literal or not. A second thing that's really well known about the story of Jonah that also tends to get in the way is how we summarize this story, not only to each other, but often how we teach it to our children. So if you, you might be familiar with this like four-part thesis of how the book of Jonah is structured. One is Jonah ran away from God, right? So the story in the outset is that God calls Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites, to, tell, to preach repentance to them, and Jonah doesn't want to. So he heads in the opposite direction than going to Nineveh. 
And then the second part we tell each other is Jonah ran to God, meaning that once Jonah ran away, that was when the fish swallowed him. Jonah had time to repent and realize that he should have listened to God in the first place. And so, so in repentance, he's turning to God. The next part is Jonah ran with God. Now, once Jonah has repented, he is back on his mission. He's actually going to listen to God and go with God to the Ninevites uh, to, to preach to them. And then the last part of the story is Jonah ran ahead of God. That is when, if, if you know the, how the story goes, towards the end, when Jonah does preach to the Ninevites, they actually repent. They listen to his message and they rejoice. And Jonah is angry. He's actually upset that this outcome has happened. This is the outcome that he was trying to avoid. And in that sense, the way we talk about it is Jonah, he went ahead of God. In other words, he was more judgmental than even God was. That's how, that's how it's described. So while this four-part thesis is actually, I mean, it's kind of helpful in letting you know like the facts of the story. When you frame the story this way, the underlying assumption is that what the story is about is Jonah's obedience to God, whether he's obeying God or disobeying God. And often the moral of the story that we draw from this is one about obedience. Do what God says, or uh, you'll get swallowed by a fish, just like Jonah does. And things will get bad for you until you realize you learn the hard way that you should have just listened to God all along. That is often how we talk about this story. That lens of obedience is one where I think that while it is helpful to understand certain parts of the story, it's not what this story is mainly about. So if we can look past the fish and look past Jonah's disobedience, I think we can dive into what this, the powerful force that this story actually has. In order to do that, in order to think through what this story is actually trying to say, it'll help for us to know who the good guys and the bad guys are in this story. So we'll start with the antagonists. They are the Ninevites. They are framed in this story, at least from the outset, as the bad guys. So this is, these are a group of people who are portrayed in the story as people who are exceedingly violent. And uh, they are in need of repentance. And God calls Jonah to go preach to them to repent. In order to really appreciate, though, what it means for God to ask Jonah to go to Nineveh, it helps to know where Nineveh is in this story. Nineveh is in Assyria. And if you know a little bit about Israel's history, you know that during a time when Israel was in its own land in Jerusalem and in that surrounding area, and they had kings ruling the land and they had a government and they had their rituals and their people, Assyria was an empire that came upon them, seized them, sieged them, and then were able to successfully take over that land and then systematically deport the Israelites who were there. Is the Assyria is the evil empire that caused Israel to lose the things that God had promised he would provide for those people for all times. Israel finds itself in captivity at the hands of Assyria. They experienced horrific violence and brutality. They were starving for extended periods of time in their siege, and they were forcibly removed from their home. They epitomize the bad guys in this story. Except, if you know the story of Jonah, it's actually pagans, the Gentiles, the non-Israelites, who are the ones that are consistently portrayed as 
doing the right thing or doing the good thing. When Jonah refuses to listen to God and go preach to the Ninevites, because why on earth would he want to bring good things onto the Assyrians? And he runs in the opposite direction. He actually gets on a ship going the other way. And on that ship, he encounters some Gentiles who, uh, like when, when a storm occurs, um, they're very concerned and they are begging Jonah to pray to his God for help. Meanwhile, Jonah is sleeping. So these Gentiles, they're, they're, they're appealing to not only their gods, but to Israel's God for help while, while Jonah is refusing it. Not only that, as we've talked about, the Assyrians actually in the story, they repent. Not only do they repent, they repent in spectacular fashion. When the king in Nineveh gets word of Jonah's message, he repents immediately. He issues an edict that everyone in Nineveh is going to mourn. They're going to wear mourning clothes. They're going to put on ashes. And even the animals are going to engage in the mourning. They're going to fast along with the humans. And they'll, they'll uh, put on their, their mourning clothes as well. So this image is particularly hilarious. This is, it shows like just how far the repentance goes. Even a cow withholding eating grass because it is convicted by the message that Jonah is bringing. This is how, how deep the repentance of the Assyrians goes. And, and yet, you would think that if ever Israel were to tell a story about the Assyrians, especially a story that takes place while Israel is in captivity by the Assyrians, you would think that you wouldn't tell the story this way. There's a similar twist going on with the good guys in this story. So the good guys in this case, you would think from the outset of the story, are the Israelite prophets, or Jonah in particular. So Jonah represents the the prophetic calling of Israel, uh, except he resists God's call to preach good, life-saving news to his enemies. We normally think of prophets as those who are called by God to speak truth to power. Uh, That is how it works in the ideal case. There are many prophets in Israel, though, who were part of the establishment. They were establishment prophets. There are a couple times in uh, in Israel's history in the Bible where you actually see that there's a king who could have like anywhere on staff of like hundreds of prophets at a time. And those prophets are actually part of what they're doing is preaching like a status quo message about, you know, don't listen to these prophets that are actually trying to change the system. The system system is fine the way that it is. This is actually, these are how, that's part of how Israel's history uh, unravels all the time. Jonah, in this case, is acting less like those ideal prophets we imagine, right, where they're speaking hard truths to power. He's actually acting more like the establishment prophets. Everything is good, just the way it is. Look out for Israel first. Don't worry about anything else. We'll take care of ourselves. Prophets were also, as part of their calling, were thought to be a light to the Gentiles. The prophet Isaiah actually uses that phrase to describe how he hopes Israel to be in, its, uh, in the way that God is going to make God known through the rest of the world. In this case, though, instead of Gentiles learning about the graciousness of Israel's God through the Israelite prophet, 
The opposite happens. It's the Gentiles are the ones who learn about the graciousness of God. And it's the Israelite prophet who could actually use a lesson in how gracious God is. In this sense, when you see all of these bizarre reversals, the silly events in the storyline, to me, what's a much more appropriate way to describe the story of Jonah rather than getting hung up on literal, historical uh, writing or anything like that is to think of Jonah as a parody or a satire. This is a satire of what an Israelite prophet can look like. I mean, after all, Jonah, whose name means dove, is a person who has any, anything but peaceful thoughts and hopes for the people that he's called to preach to. His behavior is actually quite hawkish. He doesn't even want these people uh, to repent when, when he actually preaches to them. And so then we end up in the same situation where where uh, Jonah is framed as the good guy in the story, you're left wondering, wait a second, is Jonah actually the, the good guy in this story? You realize, too, as part of the complexity of this story, the story is actually resisting this ability to neatly be able to put people into the categories of good guys and bad guys. The way that the story starts out, you would think it's yet one another one of those stories where those Assyrians, they really, really hurt us. They're brutal people. And God will give them what they deserve. You would think that that's the story that an Israelite prophet would say. But that's actually not what's going on here. In fact, the opposite is happening. To especially highlight how hard of a lesson it is for for Jonah to appreciate what's going on. And how much that uh, the resistance Jonah puts up resonates with uh, other stories in the Bible and our own experiences. I want to actually read through uh, how the book of Jonah describes Jonah's response. So this is right after Jonah actually, um, he actually preaches to the Ninevites and the Ninevites repent and they're, they're in full-on mourning and, and repentance mode. Uh, this is towards the end of the book. Uh, this is what, uh, th- this is how it's characterized. Jonah thought this was utterly wrong and he became, he means the Ninevites repentance. That's what he thought was utterly wrong. He prayed to the Lord, come on, Lord, wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? This is why I fled Tarshish earlier. I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love and willing not to destroy. That's why I didn't want to come here in the first place because I thought you would probably save them. That's, that's actually what happens in the story is that when the Ninevites repent, God actually says, I will not destroy them. I will save them. And that's what Jonah is very mad about. And then this is, uh, this is, uh, epitomizes his response. It comes uh, in, in the form of his climactic statement. He says, at this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me because it would be better for me to die than to live. He would rather die than see good things happen to people that he hates. Doesn't that sound familiar? Now, these stories are not just, this story is not just an isolated event. In fact, if you think of Jonah as like a historical parable, because Jonah himself is actually mentioned in the book of Kings as a prophet, so it's very likely that he was a real person, but it's very likely also that this kind of, they took, this story writer took this person and kind of put him in a parabolic setting to make a profound point about your enemies and whose team you're on. Uh, if you think about other parables, like the ones that Jesus 
said, um, I think there's a lot of resonance with it. So one good example is there's this famous parable that Jesus tells called the, called the parable of the Good Samaritan. The reason that this parable is told, the reason Jesus says it, the way the narrative unfolds is there is an expert in the law who approaches Jesus, who's challenging him on his knowledge of like what it really means to be on God's team, what it really means to truly follow God. And he asked Jesus, what's, what's the greatest commandment? They have a talk about it, and they agree that it's to love God and to love your neighbor. But the way the story goes, it says that the, the lawyer, trying to justify himself, asked, who is my neighbor? For him, the lawyer who asked this question What he was looking for was boundary conditions on how far his mercy should extend. That's why he asked that question. There's another one uh, there where there's the parable of the workers in the vineyard, another story that Jesus told. Now, in this story, there are, uh, there's an uh, owner of a vineyard who hires some workers. Some of those workers start working at the beginning of the day, and the owner says, hey, work with me today. I'll pay you a day's wage. And then there are other workers who come in at later points in the day, and, then when, uh, and they start working. And then at the end of the day, uh, everybody gets paid a day's wage, regardless regardless of when they started earlier in that day. So the people who were hired last worked one hour. And the way the, uh, the objection is raised by those people who had been working from the beginning of the day, they say, those who were hired last worked one hour and they received the same pay as we did. They're bringing out an unfairness. What they see is the owner being more generous than they are expecting the owner to be. Similarly, in, the, in another famous parable that Jesus tells, in the, the parable of the prodigal son, uh, there is a, a father who has two sons. Uh, the younger son uh, decides to take his inheritance in advance, and he wants to leave. He strikes out on his own. He squanders it and becomes desperate, repents, and comes home. And his father, uh, his father rejoices when his son, who had squandered all of his wealth, comes back. The father actually had another son who was there the whole time, had not squandered his inheritance, stayed there, was a good, a good family man, was, uh, was true to the family. And there's an objection that that older son raises. The older son says, I served you all these years, and I never disobeyed your instruction. And he goes on to say, and yet your son, your other son does all of this, comes home, and you throw a party for him just for coming back. I never disobeyed you in the first place. Where's my party? All of these kinds of objections are ones that are very reasonable. These are ones that we ask ourselves, right? These are declarations that we make. Just how far does my mercy have to go? Is it fair for you to be nice to people who haven't done as much and worked as hard for something as I have? What about me? I didn't do the wrong thing in the first place. Don't I deserve grace and celebration? I want to go point by point through each one of these stories and show you what the response comes uh, from the scripture writer. In some cases, in the, you know, in the case of uh, the story of Jonah, it'll be God. In the case of the parables, it'll either be Jesus or a character in the, the parable itself. So at the, at the top, at this point, Lord, you may as well take my life because it would be better for me to die than to live. Here is the, the question 
that God in this story asks in response. This is the question that actually closes out the book of Jonah. It hangs on an open-ended question where you're going to have to invite yourself into the story to see how you would respond. Here's what God says. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Shouldn't God care about Nineveh too? That's what he's asking. Wouldn't, isn't it absurd to take an Israel first or Israel only mentality? And he, he knows that Jonah already acknowledged, I knew this would happen because you're so gracious and merciful, right? And this is exactly what happens. The parable of the Good Samaritan has Jesus tell the full story. So there's a man who asked, the, this legal expert who asked this question, uh, you know, who is my neighbor seeking to find boundary conditions? Jesus responds by telling a story about a traveler who was robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of a road. And people on Israel's team, there's a a Levite and a priest pass by. They do not help that man. And a Samaritan walks by. So a Samaritan would have been an outsider by any of the standards uh, of Jesus's circles at that time. They would not have thought that the Samaritan was on God's team. This is somebody who is an enemy in the way that they construed that in the way they construed Samaritans back then, the Samaritan is the only one who helped that, that person, that traveler who was left on the side of the road. So Jesus's response to the question, who is my neighbor is this, this is how he ends the parable. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? God can be gracious and he can work through whoever he wants to work through, even your enemies, if you're willing to have eyes that can see that that's what's happening. For the parable of the workers in the vineyard, when the workers who had been there all day, when they bring up their objection that it was unfair, that they're getting paid the same amount as the people who came in later in the day, the owner in the story's response is, are you resentful because I'm generous? This is a very hard one to live out. Uh, many of you know, that even in, in small ways, in trivial ways, we have this, this, uh, this sense of fairness that greatly benefits us, that we love to pull out when it's very convenient. Um, it, it comes out, for example, you know, many of you know that Kendra is uh, one of the oldest old school Warriors fans that, uh, that we have, right? So she was a Warriors fan before it was cool to be on the bandwagon and be a Warriors fan. But never in any of my co- many conversations with Kendra about the Warriors has she ever made me feel bad or guilty for coming to the Warriors party much later than she had. She's been there all along. Nothing but gracious to those of us who are coming in later. But I know there are not many, there are many Warriors fans who are not so gracious. They've been here the whole time. Why should, why should fans who are coming late to the party get as much joy and, you know, that all of the celebration that, that the Warriors get? But you know what? I'm, I'm grateful for the people who can see beyond themselves and welcome those of us who've come late, who haven't worked as hard, who didn't persevere as much as you did to achieve what you achieved. This is, uh, these kinds of, um, slights that that we perceive against ourselves, they come out in such trivial ways. There are times when even we struggle to be happy for good things that happen, even to our friends, because we feel like somehow by good things happening to them, it somehow takes away something from us. It's a very basic human phenomenon. 
This is how I felt when uh, it w- Beyonce announced that she was having twins. Beyonce, someone whom I love, I thought now she's taken like one of the few things I had over her. Why does she have to have all the things? And this, why is that a reaction that I should have? Why, why should I react in a way in anything other than grace and mercy and happiness? I wish it was that trivial all the time, but obviously it can be, it can be pretty serious, um, you know, in, in, in many contexts where we're, we struggle to lend any kind of loving thoughts even towards people that we hate. The prodigal son, once he returns and the, the older son voices his objection, here's how the father responds. He said, we had to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father in that story doesn't present it as optional, right? This is not like, a, like a, you know, I'm evaluating your son's behavior in the time of his absence and I've decided that, yes, it's okay for us to celebrate now. Nope. It is in that father's nature to be gracious. He feels like he has to celebrate because somebody who was lost is now found. And Jonah knew that God would have to feel that way when those Ninevites repented. He knows what God's character is like. These stories are about how stupid we look when we fail to love our enemies, and in so doing, we become the enemies in those stories. This is a good gut check when you hate your enemy so much that you're unwilling to stomach good things that can happen to them. So I would have to ask you, who is your good Samaritan? Who is your Ninevite? I've been in church communities in the past where uh, perhaps if you were to you know, contextualize the parable of the Good Samaritan to our day. Obviously, it wouldn't be a Samaritan. We don't have the same interethnic conflict as, as the Israelites in Jesus's context had with Samaritans. But who would that be? In some church context I've been in in the past, it would be a member of the LGBT community, or it would be a Muslim. These are people who obviously are capable of doing beautiful things in the name of God, but maybe your in-group struggles to acknowledge that to even grant these enemies humanity, humanity enough to say they're actually capable of doing beautiful things, sometimes more beautiful things than even the people who think that they're on God's team can do. But maybe that's not the case for Spark. You'll all have to decide for yourselves who your Samaritan or Ninevite would be. I wonder sometimes for some Sparkers if maybe the, if the good Samaritan wasn't a good Samaritan, but instead was a Trump supporter who was wearing a Make America Great Again t-shirt. Maybe that would be a more compelling story or more challenging story for you. Somebody maybe you struggle to perceive as somebody who is human, capable of beautiful things, capable of being a vehicle through which God can do great things. Things. Maybe that's who it is for you. Either way, I would take time to reflect on who that enemy is in your life, who those people are that you tend to, to dehumanize to other. Because no, it's not going to be a Samaritan. It's not going to be a Ninevite. But trust me, you got those people in your life. Those people, when good things happen to them, you lose something when good things happen to them. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why do I feel this way? Can't God be gracious to everyone? Jesus uh, epitomizes this statement uh, when he's actually quoting Hosea, who is another member of the Minor Prophets. And what uh, sometimes you can consider one of the main themes that come out in the books of the Minor Prophets to say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
Now, in the, in context, this is not saying that what you know what God wants more than uh, the, or that God doesn't like sacrifices or that Israel was wrongheaded to be diligent about following the law and observing the Torah. That's not what this is about. What this is about is uh, sacrifices can became a way for many Israelites to check their check uh, a checklist to say, "I do X, Y, and Z." Therefore, I'm on God's team, and I'm deserving of God's mercy and grace. And if you can't check those boxes, then you're not on God's team, and you're not deserving of my grace. But for Jesus to quote Hosea is to say, it's not about checking those boxes. It's not about what team you're on or you thinking you're on God's team. What's far more important than that is being merciful. Be merciful regardless of whose team you are on or the person that you're struggling to be merciful to. For us, some of those boxes wouldn't be sacrifices, but it it could be things like, I go to church, I provide for my family, I support the right charities, I vote for the right policies, I go to the right protests. I am on God's team. If you don't do those things, you are not on God's team. You are not worthy of the mercy that I desperately extend to myself all the time. There are several themes or there are several times when Jesus pushes us to embrace this theme, several teachings throughout the course of his life. And uh, I have them summarized here that I always go back to to let the full force of the story of Jonah speak to me. Jesus said, love your enemies. The story of Jonah is a story about struggling to love your enemies. Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. He says, bless those who curse you. And he says, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. It's what he said to his enemies who crucified him. This is a hard calling, and I can understand why Jonah would run. Love, pray, bless, forgive. It takes work. Uh, Several months ago, after a school shooting, as we do, we met here on a Sunday, and we prayed uh, about the shooting. Sadly, these events happen with such frequency, I don't even remember which shooting it was. But it happened several months ago, and Pamela was the one who was leading our prayer after that event happened. And one of the things that stuck out to me, that resonate with me to this day that I go back to, is Pamela took time to pray for the shooter. If we don't do that, who's going to? Who is forced or compelled to love their enemies as much as people who've got, who've got that straight line to Jesus? Do you pray for school shooters? Do you pray for terrorists when terrorist attacks happen? Have you ever asked God to bless the shooter, to bless terrorists, to actually want good things to happen to them? My guess is many of us have not. I would encourage you to practice it. I know like when I brought this up in many contexts in the past, people often say that that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to do that, especially after like, for example, a terrorist attack, to take time to, to want God to bless the people who hurt us so much and terrorize us. And I can see 
how on the surface that would look ridiculous. But the more I get to know Jesus, the more I feel like not praying for terrorists or shooters. Not wanting good things to happen to my enemies is actually ridiculous. And that's what the story of Jonah is about. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for being big and loving and more gracious than we realize and for being so so difficult to fathom in that sense. You are so challenging to us in that way. Thank you for making our story a story of forgiving the people who have wronged us and for you forgiving us when we've wronged you. We love Jesus so much and we're so glad that we have him, the story in flesh, to show us what it looks like to love your enemies at all costs. Help us to learn from Jonah what it's really about to love our enemies and to avoid the absurdity that it is to be consumed with hatred for our enemies. You are good in every way, and we're so glad that your approach is reconciliation with enemies as if it's something you have to do. God, please empower us to act the same way, that when we are wronged, we see it as an opportunity where we have to find reconciliation. We love you so much, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.